Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Diploma, Oklahoma, and we're still on the issue of conflict and wanted to kind of restate what we had really explored last week, which was the simple, rather elegant model of interpersonal conflict that Gerald Miller provided at Michigan State University of simple pseudo and ego conflict. And our focus, if you missed the last episode, was on the notion of ego conflict and how difficult it is to resolve that particular form of conflict. And really one of the more interesting outcomes of the episode, from my perspective, Ray, was that we talked about the notion of being a bystander or a person who could get drawn in into that conflict and not really have an initial role, but find oneself involved in it. And so if if you didn't get to listen to that episode, we'd encourage you to go back. We want to go on to another model today and to talk about one other way of looking at conflict management. And before that, we had a writer write in to us and ask us to comment on something. So Ray, I'm going to read you their request. This comes from a, a professional social worker and teacher and says, I'm wondering if you would comment on the following. A practice method that I would teach and hopefully model included asking three questions immediately when faced with conflict whether dealing with a client or supervisor, two of the three top reasons for high turnover in social work, by the way. First, pause and simply ask, how am I feeling? Second, after identifying the feeling, ask, what do I think this person needs? And then finally, how shall I respond to that need? Thoughts on that, Bear? Well, yeah. And, and by the way, the, the the individual who provided that question and feedback is a good close friend and a uh, solid professional. Uh, in, in the context of the note, I was unsure of the situation, whether the individual was a third party mediator or they were an actual participant in the conflict. So when you ask the question, uh, what am I feeling or how am I feeling? I don't know if that is related to being a participant or related to being a mediator who's going to try and assist someone else in resolving this. I would say this, that the question that may be slightly different, one of the things I think that you need to consider is not just how I'm feeling, but what it is I'm feeling and where that's coming from. Because like we talked about last week, so often when you're drawn into conflict, people are programming you. And so you need to know if that's really from you, that that feeling you're experiencing is from you, or it's coming from the outside. That would be one issue I have with that first question. The second question is, what does that person need? If I heard you right, Bob. And I think that That's putting the other person first in terms of trying to identify what's going on for them. And I think that's a good strategy. I think that's a very helpful thing to do in the long run. And particularly if you want to play a role of de-escalating the conflict. If you want to bring the temperature down, you really do need to put the other person's state, uh, their emotions, as a priority. You You need to make them a priority and see what's going on and see if you can address it. And then that uh, third question, and I kind of lost it already. Yeah, so the third question, I'm sorry, what do I think this person needs? Okay, have I answered that then? I think it feels feels like I'd miss something. (laughs) That's one of those. Haven't I already answered that? Was I accurate? Did that work? I don't know. Yeah, well, I think one of the things you, you raise is that if you're involved in the conflict, exclusively responding to the other person's need may not be as helpful long-term in resolving a conflict if it, if it involves you. However, if you are serving as the mediator, then clearly that becomes both a good technique 
as well as being helpful in terms of de-escalating the conflict. Yeah, let me see if I can clarify my own response. I think the first thing I need to do is be in touch with what's going on for me. What am I feeling and why am I feeling it? The second thing I want to do, second goal I have in any conflict situation is to make the issue that's causing the conflict clear. Very often, it's not as much the emotion I'm concerned about as what's the issue that's causing this? What's the issue that's at the center? Because as you and I, you and I said, both in pseudo-conflict and simple conflict, the real deal is getting the issue clear, making sure both parties know what's taking place here and clarify the extent to which the conflict is real and it's resolvable. Yeah. And then the third issue is, yeah, I do want to be very alert to what's going on for other people in terms of their emotion so I can participate in de-escalating. That would be my response to three questions. You know, and as you were responding, I was thinking about the book Susan Scott wrote, which was a New York Times bestseller called Fierce Conversations. And she speaks to the issue of conflict. She terms it as a conversational swamp. And her argument is when you try to get out of a conversational swamp, the first thing you do is drop your own agenda. And it does strike me that this gets very close to that idea that if you're going to attend to the other person's needs, what you're going to have to do is drop your agenda, at least temporarily, in order to engage in the conflict in a different way and not to escalate it. So I find that very consistent with uh, her arguments. Now, she would go on and say, what you have to do is then identify what are the issues, which is the very point you were making. It's it's not so what we're trying to do is reduce the amount of emotion involved and identify what are the clear issues involved so we can begin to address, address those more directly and less emotionally. Okay. Well, I just want to thank Jay Harry for the submission, the request for some comment, because that's a very, very important part of what we're trying to communicate. Exactly. Well, maybe moving on, we wanted to uh, talk a little bit today and set up. Uh, This is probably going to be the initiation or the initial conversation around conflict management and using the Thomas Kilman model. And the first thing we did was we were, as we were thinking about this, how do most people approach conflict in terms of when they think about it, how they proceed? Well, I think uh, one of the things that happens is that people respond to conflict too much out of habit rather than choice. Mm-hmm. They rely on their natural instinct or whatever they've done in the past to work, rather consider uh, what are the options here? What should be taking place? What, what choices do I have in addressing this? I think this idea of responding to conflict spontaneously is very risky. That can escalate things very quickly because people then begin to react to the emotion rather than the content of the situation. So I think that's something you have to consider. I also think that the one of the key disciplines in getting better at working with conflict is that you commit to slowing it down, that you commit to not allowing the pace of that conflict to continue to rush into areas where spontaneous response cannot possibly get it done. You can't be eloquent enough or quick enough or alert enough to solve all conflicts when you're racing into them. You know, and this is supported by so many people who write and speak on the issue of conflict, that the first step that can be intentional and conscious is to slow this thing down, to not be continuing to respond spontaneously to what you're hearing coming next, because that inevitably escalates the conversation and escalates the conflict that's actually occurring. Yeah. Okay, what about the uh, model that we've been talking about, Thomas Kilman model? Yeah, why don't you run us through it uh, pretty quickly? You made the point to me as we were talking about it that what the model does probably better than anything else is really forces us to consider context as a key to what you choose to do. I think that was the other thing that you said that I liked a lot, which is if it's not a spontaneous reaction, if it isn't 
just this is how I'm going to habitually respond when I get myself in a conflict situation, then it can and should be a choice. And that we should realize that what we're doing is making choices about what we do next when we're engaged in a conflict. And what this model represents is possible choices, possible options that we can use in addressing context, which has to consider context. Well, the, the model gives us five different pictures of how people behaviorally tend to address conflict. And the five different strategies, if you will, are a byproduct or a function of two vectors, two axes. So when you enter conflict, there are two variables that you need to consider. One is the degree to which you're going to be assertive in this conflict, okay? The degree to which you're going to stand up for yourself, the degree to which you're going to make a priority out of getting what you need. Now, why wouldn't I see that as aggressive? That's well, you true. might, you might, Bob. I mean, that <laughs> I, would. Yeah, I always do. I was going to say, you might. Uh, we have relatives who would certainly go right there. But there is a difference between assertive and aggressive. I, I, I state the difference this way. When you're being assertive, you're standing up for your rights in a way that doesn't violate the rights of others. Huh. You're standing up for your rights in a way that gives other people room to express their needs, their wishes, their interests. When you're being aggressive, you're standing up for your rights in a way that absolutely violates the rights of others. You're essentially saying when you're being aggressive, it's going to be my way or the highway. It's going to be my way or no way. So I really don't care what you want. As far as I'm concerned, you don't have any rights in this conversation, in this conflict. So that's the difference to me between assertive and aggression. And assertiveness is always appropriate. Being assertive is always appropriate. And for most people in our culture, they're really very leery about being assertive for fear they'll be seen as aggressive. Mm -hmm. So they actually don't do the very positive thing they need to do to help uh, address conflict because they're afraid they'll be seen as being aggressive and operating in self-interest. Do you have an example of a way I might stand up for myself without violating the other person's rights to stand up for themselves? Well, I think anytime you stand up for your right, uh, for what you believe is right, you're saying you're coming from your perspective. I see it this way. This is what I feel uh, would be appropriate. This is what I'd like to get out of this situation. Now, I haven't backed, I haven't backed that person into a corner. I haven't refused to listen to what they're feeling. I haven't said I'm right and you're wrong. I'm just announcing from my end, this is what it looks like to me. This is what I recognize I need. I mean, we've gone through a lot over this last year of the difference between aggression and assertiveness. People who want others to say, for example, wear a mask might assertively ask someone, would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to wear a mask? That's being assertive. A lot of people just ignore it or, or try to act like it's not there. Now, people who are being aggressive and say, wear the mask or else, or on the other side said, I'm not wearing your mask. I'm not wearing a mask. That That is one example to me of that difference. To what degree does acknowledging the other person's position play a role in terms of either being important or contributing to this distinction between assertiveness and aggressiveness? Do you know what I'm asking there? So for example, if I say, here's what I need in this situation, but I understand you're coming from a different place. That second statement is an acknowledgement that that person has a position or has the right to a position other than mine. To what degree does that play a role in helping people understand this difference between I'm just not landing on you and I really am, but I am going to express myself. I am going to express my need, but I'm also going to acknowledge that you may be in a different place. Well, absolutely. Terrific. Okay. Very appropriate. It sounds very assertive to me. It does not sound aggressive. Now, part of the, again, part of the dilemma, Bob, is that when I say something to someone, 
they all too often hear it as about them. So all of a sudden they're taking offense because they're hearing me as saying something about them. You're not sensitive enough. You don't care. I'm not saying that, but that's what they're hearing. So you have to be assertive even when people are misinterpreting your comments. Even if you said what you said to me, which I think is assertive and very appropriate, someone might hear that as you challenging them, you telling them they're wrong, that they don't have a right to take the position they take. You can't really control what other people sometimes hear, but you can make sure that you're standing in the right zone, on the right foundation by saying, I am sharing with someone what's accurate for me, and I'm letting them hear what's going on for me, and I'm not criticizing or judging or evaluating where they're standing. Almost for me, it takes us back to episode two, where we begin to make the distinction between expressive and strategic, and is working at trying to say it in a way that makes it most palatable, but not not saying it. I mean, we are going to say it, but we are trying to be a bit more strategic in how we say it. So this it takes us back to this notion of how you say what you say it can be and is as important as what you actually say. So it really gets itself embedded in these conversations around conflict because even tonal quality, we could use the same exact words. And depending on my tone of voice and things like that, I could be communicating together a much more aggressive stance than an assertive stance in the process. Now, I realize we're not belaboring this, but going on at length, and we're already about halfway through our podcast. So in order to get through the model to set up for the next episode, maybe I need to let you go a little further and get us through this. Okay. Now, people have pictured these two axes. Let's say the vertical axis is assertiveness, and the horizontal axis is accommodation, which is to say my willingness to make the other person's feelings, their point of view, a priority. That's being accommodating. So those are the two axes. Within those two axes, you can generate five different strategies of managing conflict. So uh, if you're if you're high in assertiveness and low in accommodation, that particular strategy would be called competition. And that's an I win, you lose outcome. A second strategy would be if you're both high in assertiveness and high in accommodation. You're willing to stand up for your position, but you're also willing to give the other person all the room they need to stand up for theirs. That particular strategy or style is called collaboration. Okay. The third strategy would be if if I were low on assertiveness and I were also low on accommodation. I'm not going to stand up for my view, and I'm also not going to listen to yours. That is called avoidance. Okay, so people are just literally backing out of the conversation. Another strategy would be if I were high in accommodation and low in assertiveness, which is to say, I'm not going to stand up for my side, but I'm going to give you all the room I can on your side. Okay, that style would be accommodating. I'm going to put on my, you're very important, and what you want in this case, I want to make sure you get. And then the fifth fifth style is one in which I am partially assertive and I'm partially accommodating, which is compromise. Now, if I were to label these styles with the uh, win-lose comment, I I mentioned competitions, I win, you lose. Collaboration is a commitment to both of us winning. It's the win-win scenario, so to speak. The avoidance is no one wins, but no one loses because there's nothing that was done. The accommodation strategy is one in which I'm saying, uh, I'll personally take the hit, but I want you to win. So it's I lose, you win. And then the compromise is, and I'm laughing because I think people think of compromise in positive ways that I just can't get to. Because to me, the compromise approach is it's a lose-lose. Both of us are losers. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and most people would say, you know, 
let's compromise. Let's split the difference. I mean, those are the phrases we hear a lot. Let's uh, each of us take a bit of it. And you're saying, no, that decision tends to be a lose-lose. Well, yeah. And I, I will say it with a lot of intensity. I don't view compromise as a... Assertiveness. I, what? You say it with a lot of assertiveness. Assertiveness, yes. That's right. Order non-aggression. Uh, I, I think that compromise is trying to minimize loss. It's not trying to maximize gain. When you really compromise, you're giving up something you don't want to give up. If you're really compromising, you're suffering a loss. Now, I understand the, the value of compromise. I understand that the necessity of compromise on occasion. But the fact that people go into conflict almost hoping that a compromise is reached really, I think, makes compromise a painfully frustrating and uh, aggravatingly inconvenient outcome because both people are both people are losing if it's real compromise. Now I've been in conflict situations, say union negotiations, where both parties come to the table announcing they hate to lose this, they hate to lose that, they don't want to give this up, but in fact they don't care. So I don't I don't ever start by thinking compromise is useful. Well what's going to be interesting and I can't believe it, but we are really pushing the envelope right now time wise. When we talk about these as options or strategies, when we talk about these as context driven and that we're going to come back to you and talk about what are the best strategies in which context. I'm assuming we're going to find that compromise is not a strategy we're going to propose for very many contexts. That compromise, although it's oftentimes opted for as an early strategy, should be opted for as almost the final strategy. Kind of as a last resort. Mm -hmm. Because more often than not, the reason you compromise is to keep from losing it all. I mean, if you're in a conflict situation and there's going to be loss suffered, you want to keep from losing it all. The, pe- the reason people compromise in relationships is because they don't want the relationship to dissolve. But that should be a last resort, not a first resort. But there is a context for it. There is a time and a place that that is a strategy you ought to consider using. I'm going to suggest that what we've tried to do in this episode is set the stage. And I can't believe it because we both feel, wow, we just got into it. And we're just getting into it. And so we're going to promise the listeners we're not going to give up on this. We're going to keep working on this model, looking at the ins and outs of it and the, the specific cases of it. But today, if we were to, if I were to summarize this episode, I would say what we're really trying to do is set the stage. We're trying to set the table, so to speak, so we have a better understanding of both the model and some options we have going forward when we find ourselves in conflict situations. Is there, is there an additional summary that you might provide on this one? No, no, that sounds great, Bob. And I, I think that it's the reason it takes, the time it takes to un- un- load this or to uh, share it is because it's far more complicated and has a far greater depth than most people consider. That this is truly, of all the human experiences, one of the ones that's most complicated and uh, most fear-producing and often results in the greatest amount of damage. So I, I do think there's a reason that we ought to spend time on it. And as you and I talk about it, we just keep expanding because we understand there's a real depth to it that you, you don't want to miss. You don't you don't want to gloss over. Yeah, at least for us, we would like to get into that depth because we think in the long run, being able to dig deep on any one of these or in all of them is going to help the listener really be able to pick and choose wisely. Absolutely. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, 
more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast. Thank you.